Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. All right. Yes, thank you very much for agreeing to be on the show. Let's just, let's just start it off the basic way. Please tell us about yourself and about your most recent book and your work in general. Well, about myself, I would say that I had a previous life as a kind of semi-academic. I did work in, in universities in Turkey, in Istanbul, and in the UK. And I, I left the UK whilst I was in the sociological department. And, and during my travels, the world was getting so interesting that I decided to, I suppose, expand my, my research from not just sociological themes like globalization, technologies, but also how human consciousness was interacting with the social systems around us. And I suppose the interplay between social te technological systems and human intention, consciousness, and uh, those forces. So what happened is that around 2009, I jumped ship from academia and I went to move to Spain and I, I started writing autonomous. So I, I lived off the grid more or less and in the countryside of southern Spain. And I started to write books and create my kind of my body of work. So that's, and I've written, published about 20 books in the last 12 years. Okay. So t talk about your, your, your latest book. Well, the inversion, that comes, I think that's a kind of continuation from a couple of books I've done. I've done like Healing the Wounded Mind and looking at, I suppose, the interaction with what I call the, the counter-evolutionary forces. So I suppose these are the kind of metaphysical forces that, that kind of interplay with the physical processes. And the inversion is basically what it says is that it's, it's been, we've been tricked into perceiving a false reality, how a lot of this, the narratives that we're kind of imbued with are kind of the inversion of, of what they should be. And so we've been programmed and conditioned through, you know, various stages of our life from childhood onwards to um, accept certain narratives and programming where we've come to accept a kind of normalized madness. So, I mean, everyone, everyone we speak to now will say, well, we understand the world's really, you know, something's really askew something's not right mm -hmm. and yet we don't realize that we've been conditioned to accept that normalized madness so i break it down looking at uh, some social aspects psychological aspects looking at occult aspects and the work of rudolf steiner 
Okay, well, let's talk about that. So it sounds like if I'm hearing you correctly, the answer to this is probably going to be very multifaceted. But uh, who who is it that does this conditioning? Well, I think it's a combination. It's it's multi layered. It's a combination of it's not just like a big they out there like one body. I think it's really there are a combination of intentional forces and socializing forces that have kind of got ingrained where we don't really notice the, we've come to accept them. But you see, if you take it back a long way into ancient societies, you had, you know, priest kings who ruled over society, and you always had from the top down the necessity for social management, how to manage the masses. And usually it's because you control the belief systems. And, you know, and in the previous epochs, the belief system was kind of a top down, one way one-way stream whereby people didn't really question it because they didn't have access to information. And so it was religious beliefs, and then that got down into social cultural beliefs. And and so if you look at like, you know, the Joseph Campbell, he his he looked at the kind of anthropological mythology of, of society. And he said that we have a kind of a cosmological ritual. A, then we have a kind of you know sociological a psychological and a kind of uh, editorial aspect. So the cosmological is when we have a belief system that gives us our sense of our place in the cosmos, how we think we we relate to our gods, okay. our pantheon of higher deities. And then you get down to a kind of sociological. How do you use those narratives to manage the people in a society, your relations? And then that becomes a psychological is how do you then have narratives that you can get into people's heads and make them relate to certain belief systems and patterns of thinking that relate to the social order. And then you get an editorial side and editorial is there basically how you, through the ages, you edit those narratives to continue in alignment with your rituals of social management. What I'm saying is that now we've come to a stage where because information is like multi multifaceted. It's not just one way. We'd now, it's, it used to be two-way. I mean, people could, you know, use information to question authority. Now it's on many different levels because it's more decentralized. So I think those rituals now, you get a much more intentional social management of trying to keep those narratives that pertain to the status quo of the power structure and or religious or transnational global power structure. Have you read um, The Western Lands by William Burroughs? Part of it, years ago, I, I, used to teach a, I used to teach a course on post-war literature when I was in Turkey. And I chose the Beat Generation specifically. I loved Kerouac. And, you know, there was, obviously, in part of that was Burroughs, the poetry of Ginsberg, later some Ken Kesey. I've not read the whole book, but I know part of it, yeah. Oh, I just bring it up, that, that trilogy, The Place of Dead Roads, Cities of the Red Night, and Western Lands. He talks a lot about that, about ancient control systems and priest kings and how things like, he specifically breaks down the Egyptian and Aztec systems as what you're talking about, kind of social control structures. And, of course, does this as a metaphor about talking of talking about the modern world as it is now and i was always very struck by that and i always would always have this idea 
you look at kind of the ancient world and, and we look at it and they have these huge pomp and circumstance events where like, the, for instance, they do human sacrifice for the crops to come back and things like that. And we look at that and say, like, how could these people have been so stupid? Obviously, these priests, this priest caste was making up these gods and doing this pomp and circumstance. How could these people have been so stupid to believe this fantasy world that was constructed for them? And then you kind of look around and say, hmm, yes, how, yeah, yeah, how could they have been so stupid? You know, it's like, how many Marvel movies are we on now? You know, while, uh, while carnage continues all over the world in our name. So just, just as an aside, this is, this, this is a very interesting topic, but I have to go back to my previous question, which is who is it in our, in our society specifically that is constructing this control grid? Right. Well, we can go back to William Burroughs later, but yeah, I do like the idea of his language as a virus which I think also is biological metaphors fit into these times. But if you want to come back to that, we can. I think what we're dealing with is that the power structure really on this planet is a kind of transnational, economic transnational power structure, which are beyond nation states. The thing is, we are within a nation state thought pattern. You know, you can call them egregore, these thought forms, which are, which are nation states. But the power structure has gone beyond that into transnational states. So. Who are in who are in the, the major control of the narratives? I would say there's a there's this, these transnational groups who want to maintain a global structure that ties into their control. That will trickle down into nation states, which then gets filtered into certain cultural forms. So I think that's a that's like a, a very brief answer. But within that, I think there's a lot of that's the intentional part, top down. I do feel there's a lot of social structures and, and you know institutions which maybe not be so intentional, but get caught up into this social structures. Yeah, that's that's interesting. As you're as you're saying this, it's bringing up things I've been thinking about recently. The model of the control system, you know, who is control, as Burroughs would have put it. I think it should probably be. Well, I've been feeling like it needs to be updated a little bit because just events in the last 10 years have kind of shaken that assumption. I think that certainly people on the left have kind of inherited this Noam Chomsky assumption that there are there is transnational control and we are controlled by multinational corporations. And you see that in Burroughs, you see that in people like William Gibson and the entire cyberpunk genre and the Occupy movement and this kind of assumption, well, like for instance, that we got in the Occupy movement or, or later in 2016, oh, it doesn't really matter who you vote for because the same corporations run both candidates. I don't necessarily know if that's an accurate read anymore post-Brexit, post-Trump, post we have unbelievable levels of Russian interference in Western politics. It really does seem to be collapsing backwards into tribalism, World War II level factionalism. I'm not so sure. Like, and, and basically my, my response at this point is like, I really wish we did live in a world controlled by multinational corporations at this point, because I honestly think they would do a much better job than the Putins and Trumps of the world. I, I really do believe that having worked in many corporations and found them, of course, very annoying, but also at the end of the day, very fairly safe and anodyne, you know, and concerned with things like equal rights. My, I've updated my thinking on this. So just as an aside. No, I, th I think it's a worthy point because, you know, let's get into specifics. I gave you a brief answer. I mean, a transnational corporations is a kind of 
you know, a brief answer, but they, I mean, I don't think they are the top because, you know, these are fronts for economic movement or power. So behind transnational movements, let's say, for example, in the US, there are the top 20 Forbes companies, okay? We know that behind those, there's only three asset companies that control them, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. Okay, okay? sure, yeah. Then we know that behind these is probably the same group of people, the same as George Forrest from the Open Society funded Occupy Wall Street. They'll think that you know, Occupy Wall Street thought they were the front end of a new movement, but behind them, they're funded by a corporate a corporation, which behind them, you have a small number of people. So behind the transnational, although I, I will say, having been part of Occupy and having actually worked, I mean, this will set people off. Having worked in the same office coincidentally as Open Society Foundations twice in my life, I assure you that they're not a vast, sinister network. Network. It's like two unpaid interns right out of college who are like near suicidal because they can't get anybody to care about civil rights. But so, but I would simply say that yes, absolutely, Open Society's found uh, funded. Occupy and many, many, many other protest movements, including destructive ones in the US and abroad. But they weren't the only funders. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they were controlling everything or pulling the strings. So just as an aside, yeah. Sure. And the point is that I think there's a danger of going to a black and white kind of conspirational view. There are, that's why I said that uh, there's an element which is intentional, an element which is part of like people with good intention, is that there are many people who are part of these organizations that are there for, you know, altruistic means. So that's, that's kind of the social fabric of how you get a movement in society, cultural movements. However, I, there's, there's a kind of overarching ideology that may be filtering down into these movements. And okay, people may okay. or may not be aware of what's behind their support. Whether yeah, that, that I agree 100%. 100% I agree with that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so really, I think, you know, so you get, a, you get a small group of people who want to have power. I'm not saying it's successful. They want to have power. So they can filter the power into these transnational organizations, which filters down and filters down. But of course, there's something get, that gets very messy here on a positive level. And the messy thing is, is humans, because humans are unpredictable. We are hard. I mean, they're trying to predict us. That's why we have now have the, you know, the rise of, algorithms, AI, and predictive software. But there's still an element which we can get to, which I outline in my work, which is very important, and that's the human spirit, which is always resistant. At the ultimate stage, we may be coerced into forms of social management, but at the ultimate stage, if we feel that we've been, been pushed in a corner, then we push back. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a history of revolutions in this mm-hmm. planet. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how far are we going to be pushed before there may be some pushback? And, and that's why there's obviously it attempts, what I call the inversion, to control the narrative. So it looks like what's happening, maybe not what actually is happening. Well, so you, that's really interesting. You use the phrase inversion, which suggests it's not just, it, it's not diversion. It's not a completely separate narrative that's been created. It's like the opposite of what's occurring. Is that what you're implying? Well, yes, it, it's, I mean, there's obviously distraction techniques, but an inversion is, is a kind of, we've been kind of, not, like I call, I call it a normalized madness, is whereby, yes, the, the symbols, the, the, what the, I said, the narrative, it's been twisted around, so we think that it's perfectly fine to, to go down this path. We right. think it's okay. fine to, 
to, you know, whistleblowers are seen as traitors and, you know, <laughs> Got it, celebrities yes. and pop icons are seen as as heroes and instead of puppets and, you know, and all this, which is really skewed up. But we've come to normalize it in a way that we, we tend to, we make it normal for ourselves, whereby we, we should be questioning it more. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Women don't exist. Yeah. I think, or I suppose, I suppose this is, well, it's very much the, the George Orwell, the two plus two equals five thing. It's like, if you can get people to believe insane narratives, then they're already at the deepest level, then they're already done. And yeah, it's, it's, it's quite disturbing. Yeah. But you see, in a way, that's the way we progressed through our evolution. You know, we had science, we, you know, before science, we have the religious kind of framework. The almighty God sitting on the cloud, how you want to frame it, we laugh at it now, but it was a kind of picture. And then sign, you know, the scientific revolution came along and mixed, rebelled with, with religion and said, well, you know, maybe we're not, the earth isn't the center of the universe, you know, and maybe everything doesn't revolve around the earth. So we had to have a paradigm shift then, the way we think. So it's important we have paradigm shifts, but at each turning, in history, it seems very quick, all oh, they train, you know, they train. They change their thinking pattern, but it takes generations. Hmm, and I think yeah. we're in a generational shift now whereby we've, we're going deep and deep into materialism, which is the extremity of scientific materialism. And, you know, if we go that, if we go to that route, we're going into transhumanism and perhaps technocracy and totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. If, if we take that route to the extreme, but whenever you get the extremes, you get the possibilities for these breakthroughs into a, a different mode of civilization such as the fall of Rome, allowed it to have new kind of sure. new, new cultures coming up. It took a while. So I think it in took the future, a while, we're going to have new culture, Jason. It took a while after Rome, though. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> There's a little bit of a that's wait it, time. There's a bit of, yeah, people had to take a number and wait for a while. So that, that's it's so true, yeah, but that's like, man, 900 years is a long time to wait for just to get basic Aristotle back. Well, yeah, I mean, you have a gestation of a new culture trying to arise while the old one's going out. And then you have the initial, like a, looks like a, you know, the life cycle. You have a birth of a new culture coming up, which doesn't go into maturity until X years later. But you have this crossover period whereby you could have interference because, you know, the old thinking patterns and the old power structures are breaking down and something new is trying to come through. And as always, the status quo tried to hold on for as long as possible which I think we're seeing now. So I think there's a meta question to be asked here, which is what is the nature of the new age that it's trying to be born? Because this is a, an idea that's been, well, really, it's a messianic idea. It's, 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 you know, it's a millenarian idea that's at least 2,000 years old. But even if you look at the last 100 years, the idea of the new age that's trying to be born, or even what the future is, has changed every decade or every few years. So, you know, maybe you have like world socialist utopia in the 30s, in the 50s, you have the Jetsons and science fiction and Day the Earth Stood Still. In the 60s, you have, you know, Whit Woodstock and, and Brian Jones and the Stones by the pool, you know, and, and the Beatles. And then, you know, 70s, it's, it's some, then we get cyberpunk in the 80s, you know, it's a, or, and, you know, and then there's also the, the occult ideas about things. You have Crowley in the early part of the 20th century. And then you have like the hippie new age ideas or there. Then if you ask people like in, in Brighton in the 90s, what they thought the, the future was going to be, it would, you would get an answer involving a lot of electronic music and, and ecstasy. 
and that type of thing. So, you know, everyone has, has had this idea that we're on this verge of this breakthrough, but it's constantly changing. And, it, we, and, and all the while, we seem to actually be sliding further and further back towards fundamentalism. It's just kind of a meta observation more than a question. Well, it's a good observation because I think it ties into what we're saying. And it goes back to the point we just made, you know, it takes generations for this change to come through. What you mentioned about all these points throughout the decades, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, no, I think they are, they are kind of glimpses. I wouldn't say they're, they're breakthroughs to a new culture. They're glimpses because, you know, they're, they're temporary. And, and I think really this, this new kind of understanding started coming through over 100 years ago, 150 years ago. So, you know, for example, in the mid-19th century, we had the birth of, of Spiritism with, you know, Alan Kardec, and then you had Theosophy coming up and Blavatsky, and, yeah. you know, and then around the turn of the century, you had the whole wave of, of occult groups, and in Germany, very strong occult groups mm. coming up in the early of the 20th century, as you mentioned, Crowley and Philema, and uh, the Golden Dawn, and there's so, I mean, if you look at it, there's so much of this, this esoteric wave coming through. Mm -hmm. You know, you had Rudolf Steiner, you had Gurdjieff, you know, Krishnamurti, mm -hmm. all these all these different elements. And I think they were the earlier elements showing us what's happening. Now, if you want my take on it, my sense is that the hypermaterialism that we've come to is an extreme, and the danger of transhumanism as is extreme is that it cuts us off from a metaphysical understanding. Let's say an understanding that we are in a larger cosmos and more than just our physical material bodies. So, but we had to go through this material stage to create a kind of individualization. You know, we're not just a passive part of a unity. We can individualize our consciousness so we can comprehend that we are part of a larger scheme, let's say, beyond materiality. So we've had we've had a kind of passive stage of looking of animism and the cosmos. Then we had orthodox religion, we had scientific revolutions, and now I feel we have to kind of merge that, where we can buy, take, take understanding of materiality, physicality, and all that, how we interrelate with our technologies to, to interface with our physical environment, which is necessary, but at the same time, bring in a connection to a metaphysical, yeah. transcendental, or sacred understanding. And we yeah. have to fuse that. And I feel... The last 150 years have been trying to come in to make that movement, and we're pushing against materiality and trying to get the spirit understanding coming in. Yeah, I agree with you completely, and and in fact, I agree with you. I always I always pinpointed at 1875, which just because it's the foundation of the Theosophical Society and the birth of coincidentally Crowley's birthday, but mostly because it's the birth of the Theosophical Society, which seems as good a point as any to stick a pin in as a, the beginning of this. What was the point that I was going to make? God damn it. I had a really, I keep, I'm very forgetful recently. I have COVID PTSD. I'm trying to remember what my point was. Sorry, continue on and it'll, it will, it will come back to me. Well, I mean, so, and even Rudolf Steiner talks about that really how in this. Oh, I remember. Humanity, okay. I'm had to deal with materiality at the same time, realizing that that's an opportunity for transformation to kind of bring in spirit consciousness at the same time. Otherwise, as you mentioned, all you see is fundamentalism. That's a kind of the, you know, the ugly head of the extremity raising it coming up. I remember what I was going to say. So, yeah. Okay. So 
I agree with you completely. And this has always been the hopeful narrative that I've been running on, having grown up reading, you know, esoteric and occult and kind of counterculture material and, and engaging with these ideas. And however, you know, I look back at, I'm actually kind of re looking, I, I, I moved recently to a, a new house a couple, you know, two, three years ago. And so I've, all my books are now out of storage. And so I'm, I'm kind of revisiting older stuff and looking at stuff from the 90s that talks about this. Barbara Marks Hubbard, people like that, or Ken Wilber, and just remarking at the the hopeful. I don't want to. I don't want to say naivete, but the hopefulness of it, and how woefully innocent it looks in in retrospect. And and I think that as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm thinking about how this has gone, and I still agree with all of these models. I said, and, and what you're saying, and I agree completely about merging these things. But I think that in my own lived experience now, <clears throat> it was wishful thinking to think that these were in linear progression. Whereas I think, like, for instance, that we as a global culture or we as now people have shrunk it down to the West because they've lost a little bit of hope and eventually it will be, be down to them and their friends as their little tribal group. But we, the idea that people, that, that global culture as a whole is going through evolutionary stages seems to be wishful thinking. And what's really happening is all of these things are happening at once. And they seem to be increasingly happening at once. So just like there is perhaps more, you know, what, what can we say, post-postmodern global consciousness, there's tons more fundamentalism also. So I don't know, just kind of a point of, of uh, everything seems to be accelerating on all spokes of the wheel. Yeah, it's, it's like, you know, you have a glass of water with some, some sediment at the bottom. And you shake it up and then you sediment just clouds the whole water. I think that's what, we, what we're in right now is that we're going through this whole shake moment. It's like, it's like the, you know, in complex systems, you get to a, a tipping point, but you need a lot of influx of energy to reach a tipping point and you either break through or break down. And you don't know until the moment of the tipping point, which way it's going to go. Is it breakthrough? Is it breakdown? But it gets messy as if all the, it's like a vortex, all the energy is there. But you need something as if some kind of energy to rearrange it into a coherent order or it breaks down and goes into disorder. And I think, the, I think you made a good point about it's not just global evolution. It's not linear. That different parts of the world develop in different stages or go through cycles. Mm -hmm. you know. And so I think one side you've got civilizational development and then you've got develop, development of human consciousness. And I think consciousness also develops or kind of responds differently to developmental impulses across the globe. Because people have different characters, national characters, different influences. And, and again, I mean, just to mention the work of Rudolf Steiner, who I've been looking mm -hmm. at recently, you know, he pointed towards actually quite, I think it's quite presciently, you know, this epoch we're in, the Fifth Atlantic Epoch, is, is the stage of Europe and the West, as we call it. But the next stage where spiritual, cultural evolution will come through, he said, will be through Russia. And interesting, Edward Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet, also said that the kind of the hope of uh, renovation will come from they Russia. They got a ways now to go from crocodile, but uh, <laughs> sorry. All right. But I mean, it's, it doesn't mean that they're going to be the geopolitical saviors because that again is a false polarity, you know, just because. His, you know, his enemy of my enemy doesn't make him a savior. 
you know, geopolitical, it's a geopolitical chess, but we don't know all the games they're playing. But it just means that an energy comes up through a certain geophysical part of the earth. That's why we civilizations rise and fall. Energies are moving around the earth too. So we don't know if that's going to be, we're going to see a civilizational rise. But are you, are you sure he didn't mean South Korea and he just missed on the map? It was like East Asia. <laughs> well, man, I have no idea. Maybe he just spun the globe and okay. like, uh, but he messed, mixed up. Yeah. But, you know, there are these big, big movements in play. But one thing, I think you're right about this kind of naivety is that it's all going to be fine kind of conscious evolution. It was a, I think it was very popularized in the West Coast of America yeah. at the time. You know, and that's where Bob Mars came through, and then you know. Yeah, I'm 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 from Southern California. I'm from the West Coast, so I've 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 been exposed to a lot of this. <laughs> mm-hmm. A lot of these kind of stories. And yeah, but it doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means no, that not at all. That's they're the vision they have, but I do feel that I think it's necessary to to understand at least to some degree. The forces we're up against, the counter forces. Absolutely. And I w- really want to dig in on that. I think as you're talking, I, yeah, I mean, I just want to clarify, like, yeah, these are, these are my people. I'm not dogging them. I'm, I'm, what I'm essentially doing is lamenting that we were a little bit more naive than we should have been and should, and can, should continue to be more realistic and hardened. But that's an overall point. But it just strikes me that, you know, the issue there is not that they were wrong, it's the issue is directionality, because thinking about it, you know, in the 80s and 90s, the idea that we're going to evolve, yeah, consciousness is evolving, but the idea that it's going in a linear fashion towards, a, you know, of course, towards a more integrated new age vision of the world, since those are the people proposing the model, is wrong. That's bad thinking. That's Christian thinking. That's Marxist thinking. That's old thinking. But actually, it's evolving, it just suddenly struck me as you were talking in the direction of optionality and plurality, because now compared to 30 years ago, there are infinite more options of realities that you can live in or people you can be on this planet. I mean, if you just look at on the internet, like I I can't even keep up. There's no one can keep up with, you know, particularly younger people. You know, we live in a world where you can be a slave, you, you can be a slave breaking rocks in North Korea or you know, somebody who's a victim of female genital mutilation in the Sudan, or you can be like a 12 year old who makes, you know, $13 million a year playing video games online on Twitch. And all of those things are coexisting. You know, it's like you can be a YouTube influencer. It's it's just the, the number of options available to people. It's like a, it's just like a coral reef, like exploding into bloom. So in that sense, there has been a tremendous evolution. It's just been in number of options rather than, it's like rather than refinement of a specific direction. Mm-hmm. You could rephrase William Gibson's very well-known phrase, like the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. You know, we could say that a kind of development of consciousness or evolution's here, it's just not very evenly, evenly distributed. And, and that's good. I mean, it's awesome that there's so many options now. But yeah, so just an observation, but let's dig in on, so you, you mentioned Steiner and counter-evolutionary force. I'm very curious what you mean by that. I mean, I'm, in that case, I'm going to talk about Ariman. I don't know how familiar you are or maybe you're listening with Ariman. Yeah. But I think it's good to bring it in because it is so, it's so pertinent. In a hundred years ago, you know, in the 1920s, Steiner was saying that there's going to be a force of 
counter influence coming through material future through materiality and he used the you know the kind of persian god persian kind of demon ariman to to frame it okay to give it a name and he said that ariman his characteristics are a kind of a very dry um, like bureaucracy anything that anything that kind of holds people down very rationalistic very dogmatic nationalistic it it divides people it controls people it manages people you know imagine you know the worst case of george orwell's kind of society mm-hmm. that but also the way he talked about it was he said it's a very kind of machinic intellect you know and he talked about it in terms of machinic processes because 100 years ago it was very hard for people to listen to steiner to grasp what what is he getting at of course, when he when, now, hundred years later, we can understand that he's talking about a kind of power or an energy which is wanting to, I suppose, encourage, support, and push through a machinic form of way of life, which means not just our machinic environment, digital, virtual ecosystem, but humanity itself is becoming automated. You know. For example, Professor Shushoff, who wrote the book Surveillance Capitalism. It's a very, very dense book, but a very good book explaining how people are manipulated every time they go online by being nudged, called, you know, kind of a steered architecture. We, our behaviors, yeah. our choices are being steered. Yeah. And the more data that, that the companies get on us, that data then comes back on, you know, our algorithms and, the data which gives us access to services. So we're being coerced into a less and less choices. I, I've started, just as an aside, I've started thinking about that in a new way, which is I'm training, I'm training the, the machine to be like me. By feeding it my data, I've, I'm reversing the shamanic. Uh, it's, I, it's, I have a shamanic link to it. It has my data in it. So I'm training the, I'm training the machine to be like me. So anyways, go ahead. <laughs> no, well, I mean... <laughs> I was thinking about that recently as well, because this chat GPT and BARD, the programmers were saying, we're now going to release this onto the internet because they need more data. Uh-huh. We've run out of feeding them data. They have to go live and get data from you, the people, you know, which makes sense in a, in a kind of unhealthy way. But then I thought, well, yes, on one sense, they're going to get all the data from the people, which means that if we are in a, in a mode of like, Acting crazily, thinking crazily, putting out extreme views. This, this, you know, semi AI is going to pick all this up and get a picture of humanity. But at the same time, as you just mentioned, if there's qualities of the human spirit or the the kind of the shamanizing of humanity can come out, we can maybe put something back into the algorithms and teach it something that it hasn't learned before. Right. Maybe there can be something beneficial. It might be the, well, at least pragmatically speaking, as of right now, it might be one of the only, one of the only egresses of, of power that humanity has. And he, the whole human race should have, and I've always felt this way, the entire human race needs a say on this. Every single person, even the people, you know, on death row, even the most dangerous people, everyone needs a say on it because, in it because it affects the entirety of life on the planet. So... Just as an aside, no, a larger side. I mean, the AI transhumanist agenda is a, is a huge. It's, it's the pivotal, one of the pivotal agendas of 
questions of the day. Right. Because you're talking about the trajectory of of species evolution. Which type of species do you want? Yeah. Are you going to are you going to transform the evolutionary path away from carbon bipeds and into a you know a silicon one? So yeah, absolutely. I think the question is data. And just a final thing, Jason, you mentioned before about so many different realities on, on this planet. And I think the point we should make is that these reality constructs, they're so varied, but the question is, do we have the free choice to make the construct for us? Or are we being supplied a construct? We need to, we need to be very, we need to be able to discern which realities we are forming to to correspond to what we want to relate to, or are we just fitting into a set pattern reality construct provided for us? Yeah, that's, you know, a point that has has been a critical point for a long time. And I think maybe that also is one that might need a bit of, a little bit of recontextualization, because I think this idea is more important than ever. And for instance, even the Robert Anton Wilson idea of reality tunnels, like that, even just that idea is critical for people to understand. But it's different now in, you know, I think in the 80s, everyone did have a monolithic reality that they were laboring underneath. It's like there's a few channels, you know, we're all being streamed the same reality by the powers that be. But now because of the internet, at least if you have a, on the internet and everyone with a mobile device is, it, it is on the internet, it's just total chaos. So now it's not a question of, you know, now it's basically a question of, I guess it's so extreme now that it's like, you can just assume that all information is false. I feel like just from the get-go, unless it's like in a book, right? It's like, if it's online, like, please go back to reading books, please, everyone, please. But it's like, if it's online, and if it's, certainly if it's in real time, you can just assume that it's false. And then therefore, you can just assume from the get-go that you have com- essentially complete philosophical and ethical justification in completely creating your own reality. And of course, that leads to total solipsism on a cultural scale, which is, of course, what we're seeing. But it's, it's, it's just so extreme now that I feel that you have to just accept that from the get-go, even to cope with the internet, that you have to create. You just have to accept from the get-go that everything is false and you have to create your own reality, which is now it's, now it's not a thing of, oh, a few people will, will become conscious shamanic creators. Now it's like everyone is forced, forced to be in this position. What the outcome of that is, I don't know. It's a very extreme place for society to be in, though. Because I don't, I really don't think that the majority of human beings are meant to be in that position where they have to, where, where, I don't think most human beings are meant to be in a position where they have to be the arbiter of, of what's real and what's not. Yeah. You know, like, it's not, it's very uncomfortable for them. It's much more comfortable to have that be, to outsource that to somebody else, whether it's a priest or a leader or a shaman or whoever, so that they can focus on things like, you know, spending time with their kids and the good stuff in life. Yeah, and I think that's probably why there's so much kind of anxiety in the world and people are, you know, f- sensing this this kind of, you know, the goalposts have been moved, the playing field's whole is changed. And and I think that all that for some people that's driven them into distraction. They want distraction yeah. because they they don't they can't deal with this kind of fluid reality. And they feel like, why should I deal with it? Because it's, you know, I should be given a reality. It's my right in in a physical incarnation to have a a semi-stable reality but now it's a free-for-all and i and i you know and i think that's it could i think i think that's a sign that we're going through a major shift not just a a social shift or you know cultural 
rearrangement that we always do at certain times. I think we actually are going through a kind of psychic revolution where we are, we need to kind of readjust how we engage or understand reality. And I think we're in a process of reforming reality on yeah. a grand scale. More, literally, and that's why, literally, quite that's literally. That's why it's an epochal yeah. moment. Quite literally, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, like earlier I was saying, by the way, you just used a phrase, uh, it was so perfect. What was it? It was an uh, topsy-turvy, everything's topsy-turvy or something like that. Is it, did you say that? I'm not sure I, I'm not, I've said it before. I'm not sure if I said it in the, recently with you. Uh, topsy-turvy, upside down. Or free, oh, excuse me, free-for-all. So I'm very free for these days. Yeah, you use, yeah. use the phrase free-for-all. And I think that's just like a perfect way of putting it. Like that really is what everything feels like. It's not quite the Hobbesian war of all against all, but it is a free-for-all. And it's just like anything goes and, and quite often does go. We've got, you know, and, and now apparently TikTok is even worse. We have kids on TikTok sharing Osama bin Laden's manifesto to the, to the West and saying it's totally woke and blowing their minds. So it is a free <laughs> for all. Yeah, yeah, no, this is real. So well, I don't use TikTok or neither do I. Or, X yeah. or any of these or Instagram or no, I don't use them. I try to have a, That's a balance wise. That's wise. for my sanity. That's why um, I'm not saying that you're insane if you use them, but I would be. That's what I'm saying. That's wise. Yeah, yeah. So, but it is a free for all, and yeah. I mean, what what is the long term outcome of that? I, I what's the yeah, short term outcome of that? Because it feels like everything's falling apart in real time. Yeah, yeah. It goes back to that poem by W. B. Yeats, "The Second Coming." You know, the the center falls apart. You know, mm -hmm. it's cannot hold. You know, as you were speaking again, I'm thinking, is all. I mean, we've talked about. There's in the past there's been a semblance of trying to provide a reality narrative or structure. I mean, it's always been managed to a certain degree, but it was it was fairly stable and it worked. You know that we lived in this type of reality, and there was a there was a there was a a kind of return on the investment into society providing that reality construct for everybody, and I think that's broken down now, and I think that that. That contract is broken down. Yeah. So the powers that be feel like there's no return on because it takes so much effort to create a, a structural narrative for most people to align. Right. With. And then it just goes out on YouTube and like you get a bunch yeah. of likes and then it's done, you know, and it's like I, I understand because I've worked I worked have worked in publishing and entertainment and advertising. And it's just like, yeah, it doesn't mean, you know, it makes more sense to have people provide, do reality TV or have people provide their own content like Mr. Beast, you know, and just set up something for people to provide their stuff. So, yeah, everything is changing in that regard. And, and I think they're taking liberties, like they're throwing out narratives all over the place because they know it's not really true, but some people may go for it, some people may not. I think they've kind of lost the, I think they've given up on, on the investment on a, you know, an overarching consensus reality. Because consensus reality is going to meltdown. Let's face it. Yeah, I mean, does it even exist anymore? Like, what? What? What is? What? What is there anything that everyone agrees on anymore, other than the fact that they're all angry about something? You know, maybe we can agree on well, that. You at get least. people. You get some. You get some meditative people who say, "I'm not angry," so you know they're out of that. But then they're then you listen to them, and then they're angry at all the angry people because they can't <laughs> be as good as them for not being angry. How dare they, bastards! <laughs> So, yeah, it is, it is, it is bizarre. It is chaos. It is, and it is mechanized in a way in that we are being controlled by, by algorithms. And I'm sure, do you know Kenneth Grant? Oh yeah. The, well, 
kind of disciple of Crowley, yeah? Yeah, but he was very big into uh, the Clifoth and things like this. Well, I probably shouldn't tell this story. I shouldn't go down this route, actually. But, you know, the sense of, you know, the, the sense of, I, I think, a very, very negative future outcome for humanity, I think perhaps the worst outcome, is a mechanized kind of AI reality. And you have people like Kenneth Grant mentioned this, uh, John Lilly, the sensory deprivation tank guy, mentions this, which is a reality in which the machines we have created have dispensed with the need for us, for the, for dispensed with the need for life, where essentially you have a planet that has evolved, quote unquote, to being purely, I guess, what would that be? Silicon-based life rather than carbon and has completely dispensed with all that is not just human, but all that is humane. And I think that's kind of an ongoing process. And we see all this chaos, but in terms of how we're communicating, but it's, is it, it's not just chaos. Like, is it chaos? Or is it an experiment that's being allowed to run to collect data? Where it's just like they've allowed non, like they've allowed complete, because it's not like they can't shut this down if they, if they wanted. So all they have to do is cut the cables. So are they allowing, they quote unquote, whoever they are, you know, the governments, just this period of unfettered, chaotic communication or they get enough data to be able to put a lockdown narrative on later? Well, I'm not sure the governments are able to have that controlled. I think, I think they are kind of scrambling to, to stay in some semblance of power. But interesting you mentioned John C. Lilly, because I have a chapter in a book on John C. Lilly. Okay. And there's an interesting part because, if, I mean, if you've probably read his, bi his autobiography, The Scientist. Hey, absolutely. That's a great book. It's a great book. And the, the, the part in it is when he contacts, he makes contact with this intelligence, which he calls a solid state entity. And so, first off, he's in, he's in the isolation tank, and, he's, and he's, obviously he's, he, his mind leaves his body, and he makes contact with, he said, this intelligence, he called it solid state, which is in the early 70s, around 73, was a kind of his term for like a hardware computerized intelligence, because he said it felt dry and hard and, and calculating, machining. And this, this intelligence said that it's intelligence off-planet that is sending data information down influencing people's mind on the planet scientists to create computers across the planet so this entity then will be able to communicate with the computers on the planet as a dominant life form because it can't communicate with humans so well and then and then Dontelili starts to communicate with this entity outside the outside of the tank and, and there's a there's one story in his autobiography and he said he's coming into into the LA airport on the plane and he gets this message from this entity while he's on the plane. But I'm not sure if he's taken ketamine or not, but you know John Lilly. Probably was, yeah. <laughs> Probably was, yeah. yeah. But he says he gets this message from the solid state entity saying, I'm going to give an example of my power. I'm going to knock out all computers at the LA airport. And then about a minute later, there was an announcement from the pilot saying, we can't land because all the computer systems are knocked out. You know, So this entity is telling Lilly, I'm trying to influence people's minds of scientists to create a machinic environment on the earth as a kind of terraforming so I can kind of communicate with it and that would be the kind of new interface. And then on the back, in fact, I can just carry on. I'm going to be talk too much, but on the back of that, I gave a story, a, a true life story called the, the uh, sentient world simulation. And this is a project that was announced officially in about 2004 from Purdue university, although it was running before then. And what they've done is using the top computers in all their kind of petaflops, 
to create a, a simulation copy of the earth. And they put in a node for every person, I, at that time about 7 billion people, a node for every major corporation, a node for everything. And then they'll put all the data that they had. And, this was, and then about 2005, the, the US military command started to invest in this as well and started to use it. So, and, and, and that's like almost 20 years ago. So it's kind of gone silent now for a long time. But they were creating a simulation copy of Earth in a, in a top computer. And by now, it would probably be an AI slash quantum computer the military has. And so they, every iteration that happens on the Earth, they put that data into a copy of the Earth. Now, if they have this simulated copy, don't you think that if they're going to roll out an agenda or try something, they're going to run it a trillion times or more in the computer to see how what are the responses. So we are actually having this parallel machinic world that exists, and that's been officially, you know, officially declared 20 years ago. Imagine where it is now. So when you say artificial machinic world, are you saying is this is a thought experiment where our reality is one option in a simulation that's being run? It's run on, on, on a top machine. So let's say it's, you know, the US now has a X teraflop machine where they can create quadrillion calculations per second. This is not an exaggeration. I put in the book, the latest one is like quadrillion per second. So it, it's in a machine. So this, th there's a parallel Earth had been programmed in a machine. So it's, and so every, every kind of happening or every data change that happens on the Earth they also input it into this parallel. Oh, so you mean so they're they, running? They're running the simulation in real time of the entire planet. In real time, yeah. That that would because, be that would be quite an achievement. Well, I mean, it's not going to be exact, but of course, if you yeah, want to give, if you want to say change a change a data point, let's say I want to, what happens if there's an earthquake in this country? What happens if there's an election yeah. in this country? They'll run it first, and you get a fairly accurate predictive modeling according yeah. to their world. That is really interesting. Yeah, I would, that would be a hell of a project, but I don't doubt it. And there definitely, we, we seem to have crossed a point in like 2019 or 2020, or maybe even earlier, but definitely during COVID, where I was just looking around and it was just like, I mean, this was before ChatGPT, but I guess now we would say it's like, this almost feels like something ChatGPT came up with, or at the time it was like, this feels like something that's just like, slightly off like an ai that sounds kind of smart dumb would come up with like you know like they just ran all this data through a computer and it's like oh well if you want to demoralize and lock down society here's the best way to do it i'm not saying that that's what happened i'm not a conspiracy theorist but i'm saying that at the time under stress it just i had this feeling like this feels like just something an ai came up with it's so bizarre so i had a, I had a similar response and i was thinking i'm sure they ran it first with this parallel computer just to see you know how it would affect you know the planet and you know could they get away with it more or less because there were so many things going on you think you know you can't have sane minded people making these decisions because it's so complex so much right. is going on and they're either desperate or you know or they did game plan this before but you know they were rushed or something and so maybe they game planned it not fully I mean, I think we're in a bit of disorder, not fully kind of totally organized as it came out, but I'm sure they gameplayed it if they had the capacity right. to. If you had the capacity, wouldn't you gameplay it beforehand? A absolutely. I, and I think that's kind of the thing about AI. It's like, well, but we don't want to not use AI because 
really, when we're talking about AI, what we're talking about is the ability to analyze as much data in as fast of amount of time as possible, meaning the best possible tool we have for decision making, because the only other option is, like you say, just to have a few people in who are either incompetent, they don't, they're just reacting blindly with their monkey minds in fear to things that are, that are happening, or even worse, they're governing, you know, by comparing things to an ideology. You know, and it's like, you know, if we're in a world where you mentioned technocracy, right? But it's like in a world where it's between technocracy or theocracy. I mean, I guess it depends on how bad the software is, but I don't know. I don't want to live in a theocratic planet. Yeah. Well, if it's bad software, we may get a third option, idiocracy. Right. Yeah. I love that movie. Like film, I, think, yeah. I think that's the most realistic science fiction movie ever made. My, my favorite part is where they go to uh, the Costco and people are getting their college degree from Costco. I thought I thought of something there, and wasn't sure what it was now, but I'll come back to it. But, but yeah. But anyway, as I say, if they oh, that's all. That's the point. The, the idea of AI, I think, it falls into what, what is known as the the Moloch game theory. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. Sounds interesting. Well, yeah, it's been it's been popular. That well, it's been popularized recently. Basically, the Moloch game theory, because Moloch comes from the old Canaanite Hebrew god, where people sacrificed to him. Because in the long term, you know, they wanted good outcomes, i.e. good harvests. So in the short term, they sacrifice people, not very good. So in the Moloch theory means that decisions are made based on a short-term gain only, not the long term. And it basically, usually in game theory, you want a win-win scenario. But in the Moloch theory, it's a lose-lose scenario because everyone's going for the same short-term goals. Mm. And AI fits into this because, and I think the nuclear armament so the nuclear race also fell into it. The argument is, if I don't create AI, the next country yeah. will, yeah, like China or Russia. And once they get it, they get the advantage. So the only reason we're doing it is because we don't want to get behind, okay? Mm -hmm. Everyone's thinking that, the short-term goal, they don't want to think the long-term consequences because they want to be in the race in the short term. And that's the that's the lose lose more game. A hundred percent. Okay, yeah. So so in 2017, I somehow got roped into consulting for Google's AI or their their artisan machine intelligence program, and which you know, it freaked me the hell out. I was like, how the hell did I end up in this situation? But AI, the the weight of AI freaked me out so bad that you know the thought I had was like, okay, well. It seems like no one's ever been in the situation. What's the closest situation that human beings have been in and how do they handle it? Okay, so obvious answer is the Manhattan Project. So I go and I read all of the, there's a book you can get that has I mean, multiple books that have kind of firsthand documents like journals and things and letters that were being written by scientists who work on the Manhattan Project. What did all of them say? Exactly what you just said. If we don't do it, you know, the, the Germans or the Japanese or the Russians are going to do it. If we don't do it, someone else will. So now you look at AI researchers, same thing. If we don't do it, well, the Russians or the Chinese are going to do it. And I've talked to AI researchers afterwards, and they've said like, oh, yeah, like that's what everyone's saying, and nobody cares about the ethics. They just want to get there first. And it's just like, well, that is like, it's literally, it is a lose, it's like a losing, like it's like one of a Chinese finger trap, you know? No, it's like, it's... It's a trap. It's, a, it's a, you can't get out of that. So it forces it the destructive thing to happen. Yeah, but I mean, the the, the work, one of the worst things about it is that it's a rational argument that people can accept. You know, 
it, it seems reasonable. Well, if we don't do it, we're going to be under the yoke or under the control of those who do do it. It's not necessarily untrue. Yeah. And that that's not kind of the inversion is that the inversion makes something seem rationally plausible, even though, you know, in a larger picture, it's insane. But we've normalized it to seem rational and we accept it. And and that's been behind a lot of our kind of choices that society has taken. You know, and a lot of psychologists like the great Scottish R.D. Lang talked about this, said, you know, we're in normalized madness. And, you know, he calls it sleeping people have murdered tens and thousands during war. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in this state and we do these things, but it's, you know, it's madness, but we can't see it. So what what did he mean specifically by normalized madness? Well, again, it's 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 again a, a state of belief and action that we've been either through our own thinking patterns or through conditioning led to accept that it's it's plausible and it's correct okay. thing to do, even though it seems like madness, it seems the correct thing to do for the person or for the society. Right, and you know it's that that is so tricky because you know just as I've gotten older and and you know, just even looking at looking at the news and trying to trying to rationalize and, and morally reason through things from a, like an adult perspective. It's so tricky. And it's 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 not so, like I read I, like I read that stuff as a kid and I was just like, OK, that's it. Like, I you know, I just have to be the guy that always resists and never goes for all this mind control or war or any of that. But I, it's not quite that simple. And a, like a, a good example, for instance, that I thought about recently is not to get off on a huge tangent, but the Yugoslavian war, right? It's like the Serbian, the Serbs only stopped committing a genocide when the U S bombed them. So it's like, well, the reflexive thing to do for somebody like myself, who was raised by anti-war, anti-Vietnam war activists is to say no bombing foreign countries, no war ever. Well, would that have been the, would that have been the correct thing or would that have been the sleepwalking response since I was conditioned to do that because I was raised to do that? But would that, so in that case, possibly saying no bombing, don't bomb Serbia would have been the sleepwalking. I'm just responding to my conditioning response. Whereas the ethically correct thing to do may have been simply to say, yeah, bomb, bomb, you know, bomb the Serbian military. So they stopped genociding the Croats, which they did. So. Mm-hmm. You say it's so multi-layered that you know there is no kind of clear-cut moral standpoint because then you can say, well, we should obviously, you know, we should stop the aggressor, and then you got a question: Does another country have the right to intervene? So you know, you get into all these types of of moral situations, and then of course there's all this international law mm-hmm. and how that should act, and all the all the kind of human-made laws that we've put on top of our value systems so that our ethics now get lost because it's been been kind of, you know, positioned by certain laws and, and these policies. So, yeah, it's in that kind of topsy-turvy environment, it's very, it's, it's very, very difficult to make a choice. Uh, well, an individual is difficult because an individual doesn't know the full picture. Okay. Excuse me. Paul. And... That's all right. The individual doesn't know the full picture, and the state or military that takes action is acting under a certain position, i.e., a military framework or political framework. So there's so many actors, so many levels. Uh, that's why it's difficult to have a you know have a a a 100 clear moral 
position. I mean, the more the real moral position is, you know, you know the the Christ's amendment is that you know do not do unto others that I wish them doing to me, but do you know does the larger human civilization live by that? Yeah, I mean, in my in my woeful, woeful personal experience, it, you know, it's like people have this idea of quote unquote waking up, and the idea people have this idea inherited from religion that w- waking up means becoming better or morally good. Whereas in my perspective, it just means no. Now you get to be exposed to and deal with the unbelievably intractable moral and ethical problems that everyone else is actively trying to avoid. So that's just, that's just how it went for me. But have you read uh, René Ganon? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, the part of the traditionalists, the, yeah, I've got his stuff over there, the crisis of the West and the quantity and the reign of the self. Yeah. yeah, I just bring it up. I think it's that book. I just bring it up because he has that idea of the counter tradition in there. And you mentioned counter evolution. And I think he implies in that book, that it's not just there's a counter evolutionary force, but that there are groups actively perpetuating that. And I think that, for instance, he would say that the popular New Age movement, for instance, is counter a counter tradition because it's essentially just gibberish. It's a mockery of of the actual traditions. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't lean on Gernon much when I was writing, but I, was, I I'm aware of him, and I've I've actually come back to him after I've finished the book. And there's a, there's a, also another writer, a contemporary writer who's still alive called Charles Upton. Oh, and, I, I, I know him. Hold on one second. I'll be right back. Okay. All right. Pardon FedEx. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> FedEx. Yeah. All right. Sure. Yeah. So there's a, I say, the contemporary writer, Charles Upton, you, that you're familiar with, and I think he's taken on Gurnon's mantle. And he t- he talks about the the, the counter vectors of this tradition. So it's right is that, and Charles Upton deliberately has stated that these new age groups and and that are counter vectors. They're moving away from this this kind of you know traditional thread. And and Gernon at his time, of course, writing in the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, at that time in in you know post war Europe, he was he was seeing very much that the cycle of a certain kind of spiritualized life was coming to an end because heightened materialism was taking a hold. And so so a lot of these kind of other elements that come in that we may call uh, new age elements or, or coaching elements or positive psychology, these aspects, now of course, there's some positive aspects to that, but the highly commercialized spiritual, what yeah. I call Ashram Avenue and Guru Boulevard type of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Or now like the channeled Ascended Masters and the New Age stuff. I had a really bizarre email exchange with Charles Upton like maybe 10 years ago because I, I came across his book, System of Antichrist. And I essentially agree with him on a, a lot of what he's saying. But I had an exchange with him. I think I wanted him to, I wanted to do an interview with him. And he suddenly got really weird with me because I'm I'm into magic, okay? Like I'm a, I'm a, I teach magic for a living. I'm into Golden Dawn, Crowley, that type of thing. So he this triggered him, and he said, "Oh, you know, you're you're interacting with evil entities of the Antichrist and things like this." And I was like, r- r- "You know, really, bro?" Because I thought I was interacting with you know archangels like Gabriel and Michael and all of that. 
And he's like, you know, it's like, oh, like, oh, he said, you know, the entities of the occult pale in comparison to the beauty of the archangels of the Orthodox Church. And at this time, I was going to the Orthodox Church specifically for this reason. It's like, it's the same entities, man, like calm down. And then so I, I basically was able to get him down. It's like, well, how much of how much now, since you've passed judgment on the entire Western esoteric tradition, how much of it have you actually done? And then it came out that he basically just did acid once in the 60s and waved his hands in the air saying if he could talk to something. And it's like, OK, well, so then you never did it. So like, sorry, but shut your mouth. <laughs> right. So it's like he had. This, so I like his ideas, but he very much has like the I think he's a Sufi now and he very much has the like, I will jihad and kill, kill them all just under the under the surface, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know to that degree, but I think the thing about the, the Gurnon traditionalists, which, I mean, on one sense, they're, I think they're right in picking up on, you know, this kind of, this kind of, let's say, move away from a breakdown in, in, in a kind of clarity, a breakdown from being centered and understanding what you're working with. But on the other hand, they can be very dogmatic. And not allowing yeah. other elements, you know, it's like on the other well, hand, they what? can be Nazis. I mean, let's be honest. You know? <laughs> like, so, yeah. Well, anyone who's really, I mean, anyone who's extreme is extreme. I mean, a person like you can do the greed for good, but it's still greed. You know, the extremity of anything is an extremity, whether it's good, or whether it's something that's seen as socially good or not. So, being dogmatic, it doesn't matter if you're dogmatic for Christ or you know, you're dogmatic. So I think, you know, you need this kind of understanding of the relativity of, of the different metaphysical impulses we're dealing with. Yeah, it's funny. It just as an aside, it, it, I have really have noticed in life, it's like that greed for good thing. It never really seems to end up like that, does it? It's like when somebody makes a moral compromise where they're like, well, I'm just going to do this because this needs to happen for a greater good. It never really seems to end up producing the greater good does it i don't know why that is but somehow it just ends up like nose diving into probably what they wanted all along which was just an excuse to engage in the uh destructive thing well there's a reason why we have the the great adage the road to hell is paved with good intention yeah that that's gonna yeah i feel like those roads are opening all over the place these days and again we're now in an age of moral relativity as well so you know, people are questioning everything and attacking everything. And I think yeah. that's why we, we need some kind of inner grounding because we're being pushed out of ourselves and we're projecting out of ourselves. We're projecting our shadows, our anger, our uncertainty. But we need some kind of work and, you know, inner work. Now you can yeah. choose your path, whether it's magic or meditation or esoteric science or, or whatever. Just you psychotherapy. Need to get grounded. Yeah yoga you know and it's kind of like i feel like it's a great frustration for people who are engaged in, in the esoteric who have all these tools and are aware of all these things and these uh, unbelievably helpful philosophies and guiding principles but for the average person it's almost like if, unfortunately it does become a class or caste thing because the average person simply just doesn't have the time to engage in so, or the money to engage in something like therapy for 20 years to deal with their projection or shadow pro projection. So it's kind of like, well, you know, where, where do we, how do, how do we deal? How do we deal with this? Like, how do we deal with living on a planet full of uh, barbarians, essentially? Well, maybe in, maybe in 15 years, everyone will be in therapy because 
they'll be out of a job because of automation, but they'll have universal basic income so they can afford AI therapy. It will just be like that movie Sleeper, be like a big Woody Allen movie. We'll all be holding yeah. hands and talking about our, uh, talking about our feelings. Well, um, I think maybe more like Disney's Wally, where the yeah, 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 sitting in the big rat chairs, watching TV, and like you know the planet planet just goes to pot. Yeah, they do that in Idiocracy too. If you remember, the guy sitting in the chair watching a show called Owl My Balls. It's like the game show where people just kick each other in the balls. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You reminded me of that. I've got to go back and watch it's it. A great, it's a yeah. great movie. It's a great movie. But, and there was, a, there was a, another one about 10 years ago with Bruce Willison. I forget the name of it. It was based on a David Brin book called Killing People, Killing like, Clay People. And it was about you sit at home, but you send out your, your kind of clone and they interact in the world and society and you're at home, you know, just getting fat sitting in a chair. It's like you've, you've substituted your life for your copy who goes out and lives it for you. That seems very plausible, particularly if you're, you could just like, you know, use chat GPT to respond to messages from your boss and work from home, you know. I think Philip K. Dick was, was very quick on that. He, he picked it up very quick in the, you know, the 60s and that, because he was always talking about replicants and the substitution of reality, because his work was always about, the, you know, the, the merging of reality, not being able to understand what's real and what not. And humans being substituted by replicas. So these themes, I think, are coming to yeah. the fore. So how do we know when, what makes us human? You know, people, people don't really know what makes us human because we've always taken it for granted. Yeah, I, I think Philip, Philip K. Dick, I think it's incontrovertible at this point. Philip K. Dick will be remembered as one, but certainly one of the top five most important writers of the 20th century. It's like him, George Orwell, you know. I don't know, but he, I, I, I think that as time goes on, that will be more and more, be made more and more clear that he was the one that was thinking ahead uh, the most. Yeah. And, you know, and he had a very kind of quite complex Gnostic cosmology as well, especially after his 74 pink beam being hit. Yeah. You know? And you can equate him actually with John C. Lilly because John C. Lilly said he was talking to his solid state entity. Yeah, I was going to, thank you. I was going to draw that parallel, but I forgot. That's one of the things I forgot. Yeah, like when you were talking about the computer thing, I was like, that sounds like Valis. Yeah, and also the Valis satellite and also, in you know, when, when Dick kind of created his cosmology, he kind of calls it this Gnostic Demio zebra for some reason mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, the alien that like, hides is everything. Yeah, and it's like an artifact, like a machinic artifact that doesn't, it doesn't really know, it's not like has a grudge against humanity, it's just in error, it's just kind of an automated response to what's going on, you know, in the planet. So it's, and we, so we get this kind of very existential, really weird reality, because we kind of, you know, this machine, it can tell you it's responding to humanity, and it's in error, and it's kind of almost, I suppose, Creating reality from how it's interacting with us, for us. So yeah, so yeah, he's uh, he wrote a great essay a few years in, I think before his his demise, cosmology and cosmology. I think it was. Hmm. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, I think Philip K. Dick really just gets this kind of industrial view of 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 reality, where it's just like he gets it right in the sense that, you know, I think that people certainly for the last several decades, certainly since the 70s, have had this, just this feeling of like, what is it that we're ruled by? It's like, we're not ruled by a, a few individuals or even a few companies or bureaucracy. It's just like this vast 
humming thing of just like concrete and freeways and just like generators humming in the night somewhere in the middle of the desert and 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 you know people making decisions based off of numbers on screens and everyone just in this sleeping trance and it's like what the hell is this hive thing that we're in that it seems like nobody's in charge of and that i feel like as time has gone on it's felt less and less and less even with ai and all this it's felt less and less and less like anybody's actually either in charge or that even anybody could stop the train if they wanted to so i think he just gets that right and you know, it's like, it is like the William Burroughs thing where he says, he says, you know, it's like no, no more Stalins, no more Hitlers. We're ruled by, you know, small groups of faceless bureaucrats in groups that we will never hear of or see. But I think it's beyond even that. It's not even bureaucracy. It's just like the machine is perpetuating itself. Yeah, I did a, I did a thought experiment as an essay called, which I'm looking at tech terraforming. Because I, I remember a poet, there was a, a quite a popular poem in the 1980s called Autogeddon. And it was by a British poet called Heathcote Williams. So it was a, like a book-length poem. This is the one that uh, became a Julian Cope album? Well, he, Julian Cope took the name Autogeddon, okay. yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, after his Jehovah Kill album. Yeah, yeah, I love that album, yeah. Yeah. And, and so Autogeddon, the, the, poem, the, the poem said, what if an extraterrestrial species was passing by the earth, stopped to have a look, looked down, and saw all the cars across the earth, they would be forgiven for thinking that cars were the dominant life forms and humans were a fuel cell. Because when a human gets into a car, it moves. It stops and humans get out. So humans <laughs> are the fuel cell, the cars are the dominant life form. Yeah, yeah. So I took that metaphor, that image, and I, you know, so I created a, I extended it and I said, well, that was in the age of automobiles. Now we're in the age of a kind of tech ecosystem, digital algorithmic ecosystem. So if that same extraterrestrial was passing by, looking down on the earth, seeing all kind of the, the, the antennae, the cables, the Wi-Fi, the satellites, they would think that the earth belongs to machinic intelligence and that we are just the data providers moving through it, you know? Yeah. And so if you look at it that way, it's almost as if our planet had been slowly terraformed to be more amenable to a different form of intelligence. An intelligence which doesn't like carbon, because it doesn't seem to like us and doesn't seem to like CO2 either. So, you know, it's kind of like terraforming it to be facilitate its presence rather yeah. than our presence. And, and terraforming our consciousness also, which is yeah. quite interesting. Machine consciousness, yeah. <laughs> so you think of that as like a cordyceps fungus or something like that, because the cordyceps... Uh, also takes over the brains of the caterpillars it, it infests in order to get them to spread it. So wasn't that the theory behind the last of us? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that didn't that didn't that didn't work out. Which I, I love. I love that game, and and the show's pretty good too. Yeah. Although, I, so I I've thought for a long time. I've had similar thoughts. Although I've thought my my line of thinking has been that it's actually memes that are the dominant. Uh, species, not memes as in like the image macros that images sent around, but memes in the Dawkins sense of the ideas that are long, the ideas that are persistent and live long, long, much longer than human beings, as it's the memes that would, re in that scenario, require both us and the machines to transmit themselves. Like these are transmission vectors and, and, and for, for that, for the actual information and the data that's being transmitted. Another way to look at it.
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how this this intriguing idea of memes was was given to the world by the the world's greatest atheist. <laughs> right, right. But it's a completely <laughs> new know, way to look at animism, essentially. Yeah. Well, you know, the the great spirit works in mysterious ways. I'm, I'm sure Dawkins <laughs> right, would right. appreciate that comment. But right. And I think, I mean, William Burroughs would fit into this very well. We mentioned, you know, before, you know, he said language is a virus and, you know, and memes is a form of language transmission. And and so, yeah, it is. I mean, DNA is a language transmission and that is the bedrock of life. And a meme is is a variation of that, but it, it lives externally, to, you know, which probably the lifestyle we have actually would suit it more because DNA is an internal transmitter, has to be within a fleshy carbon body, you know. If the DNA came outside, he wouldn't, he wouldn't survive very long. But now that society has been externalized through our technologies and everyone's projecting outside and we're, we're going into materialistic paradigmic culture, the memes would, would thrive much more in that culture right. than would DNA. And so they would spread faster. Now we have a you know, much more decentralized kind of global communication. Yeah, I think it's like a mycelial network of fungi linking up and talking to each other. But also, as you're saying that, I'm thinking... Yeah, there's another thing going on that's really, really weird at an even deeper level, which is that if now if you think about it, human beings now have an option, assuming they have connection or connected to that mycelial network of mimetic instead of genetic survival, meaning it's like, you know, spreading your genes is now not the only way to survive beyond death. Now you can concretize yourself in as a meme or a series of memes as, you know, a TikTok dance or something or you can you can live forever on the internet or simply get your meaning as being a transmission vector for a larger meme plex like for instance make america great again or whatever these big things that people are are clustering into so that it's not a single person creating it but they're getting their sense of meaning and their sense of genetic survival from clustering up with a, with a with a meme mm-hmm. and that's a really bizarre thing it's bizarre, but it doesn't sound so bizarre in this context. I mean, I, when you were talking, I'm thinking, what would Timothy Leary make of the world today? Because it's the kind of thing he was talking about, the intelligence agents and, you know, the way that the culture transmits, as you said, the kind of genetic life forms. And I think Timothy, this is the kind of stuff Leary was, was dabbling with before. And he, you know, in the end of his life, he really did get into the IT uh, world and that. So yeah, but of course, if you look at if you look at evolution, you know you get the biological evolution, which adapts to cultural evolution, and vice versa, both adapt to each other. So what if you get a an a, a, an advancement in cultural evolution? That's because obviously biological evolution is much much slower, and cultural evolution is much faster at the moment. But now it's come to the point because of the technological intervention that cultural evolution can actually intervene with biological to make an event mm-hmm. to its to its contours. Yeah, and you you that that's really interesting because you know one angle to talk about that from is the idea of epigenetics and the idea that our minds can influence our genetics already and clearly have based on how quickly human beings have. I mean, just look at dog evolution and how many ways we modified them, but. CRISPR, right? You you talked about earlier what it's going to be like when we start modifying the species. It's like with CRISPR, we're going to we're going to be able to start editing our genes. And I think all the culture all the culture wars that are going on right now around 
trans identity, trans rights, trans spaces, all of this is kind of a preview and a, a very, very far echo, I think, in terms of how extreme it's going to be of when CRISPR hits and when anyone gets the ability to change themselves at a genetic level. Like, I, I don't think we can even imagine what that's going to be like. Although given the trajectory of culture into, and reality television, I, I assume it's going to be pretty ridiculous. Yeah, I think this, this is the kind of, I think cyberpunk could probably imagine it better than, than we could because that's the idea. You're dealing with human imagination. If you have the means to do it, again, it's that kind of that Moloch theory. If you have a short-term game and it looks attractive, you're going to do it. Someone's going to do it. And then once you modify, you change your environment. And this, you know, the, for example, the film Gattaca, mm -hmm. Andrew Nichols' film, it's great because it shows you that once society is taken on, adapted, you, if you don't adapt with it, then you lose out. You have a, a tiered society. And of course, that's always going to be attractive to those people with resources, with money. And that's where transhumanism comes in because transhumanism, generally, the first wave adopters are going to be those who have the means and resources to pay for the first wave of those technology fusions. And then they start creating a bridge between where they are and where the regular society is. You're never going to, to rebridge that gap. Oh, you mean that they will maintain an, like a, a, an artificial moat so that they can get it and everyone else can't? Well, I think there's going to be, there's always going to be that gap because the technologies are going to be, the, the question of technology is always access, you know? And you can you can access if you if you pay your subscription. You can access if you have the means to pay for a technological operation. So of course it's going to be about money, and that will give you a gain. And once you get an advantage gain, if it accelerates very quickly, which technological advancement will to catch up, you may not be able to catch up. Right. You may each generation may be able to do some adaptation, but not catch up. So you get a runaway technological evolutionary path, which is kind of scary or dangerous because then then you get what we call locking effect you know in complex systems you get a locking effect whereby once you get in that groove it's, it's hard to get out of it because everything starts to set in to perpetuate that direction well i guess the counter argument to that would be yes and and the other outcome could certainly be that as these technologies that are only at the beginning available to the ultra wealthy get worked out of course there's pressure to make more and more money from them because they're really good so the price will come down and cheaper versions will be iterated for more and more of the population for you know and the classic example was flight you know flight became the equivalent of, of a greyhound bus after it, but it took a while and clearly that will happen with space flight but it's going to take a while so it, it, it often it's the ultra wealthy at first but you know, it's market pressures. I hate to sound like a Republican, but market pressures force it down to, to so force it so that everyone can use it. Now, maybe that'll happen. Yeah, but, you won't get, won't. but not everyone gets business class. Not everyone gets <laughs> business class. That's correct. Have you seen the movie? What's the movie with Matt Damon with the O'Neill colony? Uh, Elysium? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. I um, think that's fairly, I think that's a pretty likely scenario where you do have the breakaway where all the ultra elite Davos class people live in a floating O'Neill colony above Earth, while the rest of Earth looks like the slums of Rio. Either they go up or they go down, which is why all these rich people are now buying bunkers and etc. Right, you know, right, yes, right. If, if, if things really, if the shit hits the fan, as we say, 
then I don't think these people with a lot of money are going to have much of a moral conscience. They're going to try and get away from it and leave the rest of it to deal with it. Yeah. But that's the extreme. I don't, I don't think, I don't think that will go well for them, though. I think there's only only so long you could try to isolate yourself from the rest of humanity before you find out you actually do need everyone else. Like maybe you break your foot or you get a disease that you don't know how to handle or you run out of supplies. So I think that they'll try to do that. I mean, they're building bunkers in New Zealand and I'm sure they'll try to get off world and things like that. I just don't think it's going to be that great of a strategy long term. Well, I agree with you. but And this, I think, is a flaw in, in the thinking of these hyper-materialistic, hyper-rich billionaires and that is that you know, they, for example, they want immortality. They want transhumanism. They want to upload their brain. And all this thinking is trying to keep a hold of something material, their power, etc. And they're getting more and more estranged from the inner technologies. And I think this is the point that, you know, is worth making is that the future, I think, we have to learn more inner technologies mm -hmm. to, to expand the capacities of our of our perception, our, our neuronal cognition, and our psychic abilities. Mm -hmm. Because biological evolution, we're, we've got to a pretty high stage. We're not going to grow another limb now or another eye. We're going to now expand our perceptive level to perceive beyond our reality construct, beyond our confines. I think it's a major mistake that the people with control and money who could invest and, and could take time to look at the future of humanity are only seeing the future in physical terms. Yeah. But that's that's our advantage because the more people like ourselves can can kind of Wait, did you just say I was moral? Whoa there. Sorry? Did you just say I was moral? No, no. Did you just say moral people like ourselves? More people. Oh, more, more people. people. I was gonna say I was gonna yeah. say, whoa, let's not no, I mean, conclusion. I don't know. I don't know. I can't <laughs> say okay, sorry, sorry. what is moral. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, go ahead. That, that was that was a attempt at a joke. Okay. Yeah. Well I said no, I wouldn't want to accuse anyone of being immoral. <laughs> moral. You can accuse me of being immoral if you want. That's fine. Moral, though, that's the... Sorry, go ahead. Just to finish, no, if there's more people actually investing their time on trying to, you know, get a contact to more high, more intelligence and trying to understand the human condition and to make contact with other influences, whether through the inner journeys, whether through, you say, shamanism or magic, Yoga. Then even just yoga and meditation. I mean, just, yeah, just exactly. chill out. Okay. Just chill out everyone. Then that is going to be the solid grounding. I think not all this running away with this material orgasmic kind of wet dream. Yeah, I agree. And we can't go too far into the spiritual either. I mean, it's like, it really is all about balance and, and, you know, it's like, I don't have anything against the idea of authority or government or anything inherently. It's just like, I, I, I think like many generations of people have have it's like basic point is you know if you're going to have nuclear weapons and threaten all of us you know we we at the very least let's talk about doing some more yoga classes you know it's like let's let's uh, talk about basically what you're saying which is okay human beings are getting are now they've crossed a threat they crossed the threshold in the 20th century where they develop weapons that could essentially end all life on the planet okay that's that's an unbelievable threshold for species to cross or for life to cross for all we know this is the only life in the universe and it can now end itself that's kind of a big deal if the only life on earth destroys it on the in the universe destroys itself so it's kind of like well we just need more enlightened 
leadership. We want material, we material wealth, we want technology, but we need to. And I think that I think that our culture is actually quite good in has been going in this direction is we need to match that with, as you say, in the inner technologies. And I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I, it's, I think I think the, the, the cleverer humanity becomes, the more wisdom it needs. Yeah. Because if cleverness advances and wisdom doesn't catch up, then you've got that imbalance. You could say it's like intellect versus intelligence. And that's the balance we need because the technologies have allowed us to grasp more possibilities, as you say, through material well-being and betterment, which is fine because material realm, that's what we live in, so we have to interface with it to, you know, to create it. It's like you're in Minecraft, you want to make the best the best environment, you know? We're in a similar thing. But you I think the I think technology has given us such a kind of power kick and such a whoa, we're racing ahead. Now we need to kind of slow down a bit and think, okay, now what are we going to do with this? Because yeah. we haven't thought about it yet. Yeah, and and that's why I think, you know, honestly, I think uh, actually podcasts are, are doing very much in that role in culture, talking through these things. That wasn't available in earlier generations. And I don't think that rejecting technology is the answer either, because like I, for one, do not want to. I like showers and I don't want to live in a hippie commune ever. Sorry. But but rejecting technology is just it, that that's a dead end. I mean, you're not going to change the trajectory of the world. You're just not. So it really is a question of everyone. And it's a, such an exciting time to be alive also, because things are moving so quickly now. That just, you know, staying on the horse is hard enough the, the, without the horse kicking you off of culture. But, you know, new ways of being, new ways of seeing the world, new philosophical, new ethical systems are being created and destroyed and recreated and reformulated so fast that it's just a phenomenal psychedelic trip to be on and become, and become involved in and part of. It's a really bizarre time to be alive and, and fun. It is. It's incredible. And that's part of this kind of unsettling kind of movement because you need a, a rearrangement, otherwise new structures can't come in. You can't put a new structure onto a static structure. You know, so you need a breakup, which has always happened periodically in civilizations. But I think you're right about podcasting because, you know, we've always had, I mean, legacy media really is dying a death. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And I think most people realize that because there's no trust in it. A lot of these big, which is unfortunate, because it's like, how can well, great, well, how can you trust people doing podcasts out of their bedroom? You know, that's not that's not a paid journalistic team. You know, you know what I mean? Well, if 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 you get more people trusting a, a person doing a podcast in their bedroom than legacy media, you know, the whole game park is, you know, the whole goalpost is shifting. Yeah, but they've they've had their chance and they've blown it. And you know, these companies now are laying off hundreds and thousands of staff because, you know, they're they're feeling a pinch. When when a new movement comes in, you're going to you can see the old movement, the old way going out, as is happening now. Of course, the thing about podcasting is you're getting people you can relate to one another. You know, journalists yeah. have this yeah. kind of mannerism where they've been trained to to kind of yeah. you know interface or communicate in a certain way, and now people can feel that it isn't it isn't honest. Now it doesn't mean if you are if you agree with a podcaster. If me or you, you and I disagree, that's okay. It's not about that. It's, right. it's about, do I trust that you're genuine in what you're, you're saying? It's about actual human communication instead of forcing everything into sound bites. Because, you know, it's like if you get two people sitting down 
talking for two hours, like so many little things are going to come out and little tells and mannerisms. And, and, and also people are going to be able to explicate their positions better, which is why, you know, it's like literally like they should do presidential debates in the U.S. as podcasts. You know, it's like, all right, sit down. I mean, can you imagine like, 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 like just picture like instead of the whole of the last election, uh, we can do the, the UK equivalent too, but just like the whole of the last election, like, you know, a six hour podcast or two six hour podcasts between Trump and Biden, like that would have been phenomenal. That would have been all that you need, you know, then you can actually get a sense of, and, and then, and then somebody like actually pushing them, like them spending 30 minutes on a policy or something like that. That would be amazing. And people voted on the podcast. So instead of doing, instead of going to a state and doing a, you know, a speech and then trying to win the, the, the you know, the seats of that state, you do a podcast that goes out and people, people kind of vote democratically, decentralized, and then they get the, the votes for that state. Yeah. Based on the live podcast. I mean, there are ways of doing this. Absolutely. But of course, people are being pushed out. And that's why people are upset because they're being pushed out the whole process at every level. From from politics to finance to to you know industry and and they're losing their mobility and people are annoyed and that's where the pushback is going to come because as I said at the beginning of this program in all this world of predictability and algorithms the one thing which is messy is humans yeah. and that's in a good way and that'll always happen and we're always going to find ways that we're going to to get around it so yeah I think we're going to see some kind of movement from the human side because you know, we're not going to sit around for these architectural algorithms and digital everything to put us into an iron cage. But of course, as the, say, as the phrase goes, necessity is a mother invention. Humans are always willing to kind of wait and wait and wait, but when you get squeezed, then you get, the, yeah. then you get a great moment of innovation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe that's a good place to start coming to, uh, starting to wind down. But I, I want to ask, you know, how do we, if, you know, how do, how do people begin seeing through this or working with it or getting out of it? Or what, what's, uh, what are hopeful steps people can take? The first thing is to question it. And that's why I think the last few years have been remarkable because, you know, people were, were I think, just blindly taking information without critically analyzing it. So we need, to we need to exercise our filters. Every information we receive, I think, question it, where did it come from? How does that information benefit me? Is it useful to me? Do I need to share that and pass it on? Or am, am I, you know, not being useful by passing it on? And critically, we need to raise our critical faculties more. And then the more you question something and take time to observe it, then you can actually see where it's coming from a lot more. So I think that we need to be that much more aware because information is a type of food. We take in, you know, we, we, we think about what we're going to buy, what we're going to cook and what we're going to eat, but we rarely think about what we're going to ingest with our, with our information. And we, we need to take it on as an important digestive kind of diet. Yeah, really. yeah. yeah I agree with that. My, I, I think that the best tool for that outside of Twitter, if it's used correctly, you got to be careful though, in terms of having well curated lists, but a, a great tool that's everyone has access to, but that has been hidden from them is RSS feeds. You remember RSS feeds? I did my PhD with RSS because it was go. the best research tool ever. 
in the morning, open the computer and they get oh, everything coming up to all the information. Yeah. Yeah. That that, that, they've, they've hidden that from, from people because they don't, they want people looking at ads because it strips the ads out. So RSS is a, is a great way to cut through a lot of the hypnotic, the bad hypnotic features of, of, of the internet. Where can people find your books and find out more about you? And your what's your and also please name drop the full title of your your latest one and or and pitch whatever you'd like to pitch. Well, I mean, first off, people want to know more about me. Just search for me because having a name like Kingsley Dennis, they usually come up quite high in the searches because there's not many other with that name. So I have a Substack, Substack.kingsleydennis. I've got everything for free. All my essays, everything I put on Substack is is open for people to take. Lots of essays there. I've got a YouTube channel which I put out a lot of videos talking about Philip K. Dick and John C. Lilly and the Ghosty Machine and that. You know, find me on YouTube. I have a webpage too. I have about over 100 essays on my webpage. Everything downloadable, take as you wish. So you don't have to buy to find out what I'm talking about. But if you are interested in my books, again, all online. The last one was called The Inversion, How We Have Been Tricked Into Perceiving a False Reality. I've got about 25 books. But just browse and uh, use your critical faculty. If you think I'm talking rubbish, fine. But everyone do their homework. That's all I can ask. All right. Well, Kingsley Dennis, thank you very much. That was that was an excellent show. Yeah. Cheers, Jason. Right, Appreciate it. Great luck with your book. Cheers, man. All, all the right. best with everything you're doing. Talk to you soon. Talk to you. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely. Had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class, and until next time, hang in there.